You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The, Jew, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 113, what does the tenth commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. 
Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, I think that we all know something about what it's like to be in a hurry. Your bed is nice and warm and comfortable, And you assume that you have all the time in the world when suddenly you realize that the alarm failed to go off. You are late. Out of bed you jump, run to the bathroom, do the bare necessities, pull on some clothes, grab some breakfast, and out the door you fly. You are late. And you are in a hurry. Well, beloved, to some extent it seems that the catechism here in Lord's Day 44 woke up one morning as well, discovered that it was late, and decided to put everything into overdrive. Instead of carefully dissecting the meaning of the tense commandment, it opts for a shortcut. There is no, what does the tenth commandment forbid, And there is no, what does the Tenth Commandment actually and fully require? No, it's all rather short and stunted. And really, if you look at the answer, the answer it gives sounds like a summary of all the commandments that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. And in addition, it also sounds, and maybe that struck you as well, as if the the catechism kind of misses the point. Rather, with our all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Well, can't you say that about each and every commandment? Where's an explanation of covening? What does covening even mean? In short, beloved, it's as if the catechism zooms right over the Tenth Commandment and gives it hardly any specific attention. It seems to be in too much of a hurry. But a hurry for what? Well, who knows? Perhaps a hurry to wrap up the Ten Commandments? Perhaps a hurry to tie together a few loose ends with respect to the law, perhaps in a hurry to get on to the next and the last part of the catechism, namely the Lord's Prayer. Whatever the case may be, there is no avoiding the fact that Lord's Day 44 represents a bit of a rushed hodgepodge. 
Answer 113 gives a weak, short, hardly satisfying explanation of the Tenth Commandment. Answer 114 goes on to deal with the law and perfectionism. Answer 115 asks about the law and preaching. Three different matters are stuffed together in the one Lord's Day sock. And yet, if we're patient and give these matters some prayerful consideration, there is something that we can do with all of this. But the fact of the matter is that all three of these questions and answers, while being rather different, have something in common. There's a common thread running through the hodgepodge. There's a theme, if you will, that binds them all together. And what's the common thread? What's the theme? What's the uniting factor? Well, it's this. Why still bother with the law. Why still bother with the law? All three questions and answers want to show us that the law of the Ten Commandments still has validity and relevance. Don't throw it away. In other words, there's just so much Old Testament stuff. Don't dismiss it too quickly. Don't dump it too soon. And why not? Well, because it's still good and it's necessary when it comes to three key areas. And notice the three areas. You have them on your liturgy sheet. Heart inspection is number one. Sober reflection is number two. And future direction represents number three. Now, beloved, there may be a lot to criticize when it comes to answer 113, but there is, thankfully, still something that this answer got right. And I'm wondering whether you can guess what it is. What did answer 113 get right? Well, it has to do with that word heart. Twice in this rather short answer we read about the heart. In the first part of its answer, we're told that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments shall ever arise in our heart. And in the second part, we are told rather with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. So really, answer 113 is trying to say that The Ten Commandments has something to do with our hearts and what goes on in our hearts. And that's correct. For unlike all of the other commandments which deal with both the external as well as the internal, this particular commandment deals only with the internal, what's on the inside, what's in the heart. What's the Ten Commandments all about? It's about coveting. Coveting is the key and the central word here. Now, what's coveting? Well, it's a word that has to do with our desires, our, our thoughts, our longings. It describes what goes on the inside of our lives. It deals with that which is invisible, secretive. 
They hid it. Yes, and I think we all know just how that works. You can be having a conversation with someone about something, but meanwhile your thoughts are elsewhere. You may be asking someone how well they're doing, but all the while you are really thinking about that next appointment you have with your doctor and what the news is going to be. Or you may be cooking a meal, but on the inside you're uptight because of what one of your children has just pulled off. Or you may be laughing and having a good time, but on the inside you're really raging mad at somebody else. And all of that just shows you that the outside and the inside of our lives are not always necessarily in harmony or in step. What you see on the outside is not necessarily a reflection of what's going on on the inside. Well, now, this is also what the Tenth Commandment is hooking into. It's warning us about the negative and the dangerous stuff that can so often and easily happen on the inside of our lives. It's concerned about our heart and its condition. If we look at the wording of this commandment, it states, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. In other words, it is possible to give the outward impression that you are happy with your house, but on the inside you are really filled with jealousy, hatred, envy, anger, and spite because your neighbor has a better place to live in than you do. And also it states you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Outwardly, you can be pretending to be happily married, but secretly, you may be longing to be in bed with your neighbor's wife because she's just so much better looking than your wife. And as well, the commandment goes on to warn us about coveting manservant, maidservant, ox, ass, or anything and everything that belongs to your neighbor. Of course, we don't tend to covet servants these days or oxes or asses, but what about cars and motorhomes and holidays and health and happiness? A lot of what our neighbor has and a lot of what our neighbor does can turn us green with envy. So your outside demeanor may be one thing. Your inside demeanor, however, tells a whole different story. And so what is the Lord Jesus Christ getting at here? What's the Lord God getting at here when he gives us this 10th commandment? Well, you can say he is calling upon his people to do some regular Pharaoh systematic heart inspections from time to time. He wants us to take stock of what's happening inside. What's actually living there? Uh, Is it a place of happiness? 
Or is it a place seething with discontent, with unhappiness, and all manner of dangerous thoughts? And if so, you need to deal with it. You shouldn't let the festering, if that's what's going on there, go on and on. You shouldn't allow your heart a free reign. You shouldn't allow it to drag you down. And you see, that's also the point of Mark chapter 7. There the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are completely preoccupied with outward rituals and external conformity. As far as the Jews are concerned, only the outside stuff really matters. As long as you say the right things, do the right things, go through the right motions, put on the right airs, you are deemed to be 100% okay. But notice, then along comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And among other things, he is also, I remind you, the great searcher of hearts. And he takes note of course, of what is happening on the outside, but he also has this ability to see deep into the inside. And what does he see among a lot of people in his day? He sees contradiction. Huge, ugly contradiction. He hears pious, pretty words, but he sees corrupt and dissatisfied hearts. Notice he even points it out. He cites the fifth commandment and tells the people that while a lot of them are piously quoting the fifth commandment, They are inwardly looking for loopholes so as to exempt themselves from their duties and responsibilities toward their parents. And he says that's only one example. There's a whole lot more I could point out. But then you notice, too, the people really didn't get it, and neither did his own disciples get the point that he was making? So, so he has to resort to rather blunt language. He says, what comes out of a man makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, envy, deceit, lewdness, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside. And they make a man unclean. So, beloved, the point of the Tenth Commandment is what lives on the inside of your life. What lives in your heart? What kind of condition is it in? Take some time and inspect your heart. And if it's filled with covetousness and similar sins, then surely it's time not just for heart inspection, but also for heart cleansing. It's then time to repent, to pray, 
to ask God to give you a new heart. It's then time to discover the key that unlocks the door to the positive side of the Tenth Commandment. And if you ask, what is that key? Well, it's not covetousness, but rather it's contentment. It's called being satisfied with your lot in life. It's called being at peace with what God has has given you. It's called enjoying what you have in your job, your house, your wife, your children, your church, your, your circumstances. Proverbs comes to mind here. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. A happy heart makes the face cheerful. And the Apostle Paul, too, comes to mind. I have learned, he says, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And what's the secret? It's being in Christ. And it's the conviction that I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And so, beloved, when we come to this Lord's Day 44, the first thing we need to deal with then is heart inspection. There's also a second thing, of course, you find that in answer 114, and that has to do, you might say, with sober reflection. In a way, question and answer 114 is a bit of a transition. It signals the end of the catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. And in addition, it reminds us about certain things that still need to be said with respect to the law generally. And what comes to mind first? Well, first it warns us that we are not able, having looked at all of these commandments, that we are not able to keep them Perfectly. You know, whenever people hear words like law, commandment, ordinance, precept, rule, what have you, they immediately think about things that they need to do and can do. People have a tendency to look at the law as if it were a whole series of hurdles that you have to jump across in order to win the prize. And we can do that, right? We can jump hurdles. We know how to go through hoops. We know how to do these things. And so that mindset applies to the law as well. You know, you you hear the law of the Ten Commandments, you hear it preached, you hear it read, you, you know it, and you say to yourself, we can do this. We can keep this stuff. We can meet these demands. But then the catechism comes along with some sober words. The first sober word is no. But realize it says no for a reason. It says no after looking at a long list of lives. It it mentions the holiest or the holiest of people, which means the best, the brightest, the most able, the most together people that you meet in the Bible. And what does it say about all those super saints? 
It says they have only a small beginning of this new obedience. Would you believe it? They are still works in progress. None of them have it made. Not one of them has scored a perfect ten. Not Paul, not John, not Elijah, not Abraham, not even Moses. Now that's sobering, right? Isn't this something that puts our our lives in perspective? Doesn't it get us off our high horses and bring us down to earth? If any of us thought that perfection was within our grasp, Scripture says we need to think again. But something else as well. For a while, none of the big names in the Bible kept the law perfectly. That never stopped them from trying. It says, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. Notice, lack of success does not mean giving up. Now, in spite of their feeble achievements, these people keep on striving for perfect obedience. Forgive me, perhaps, for saying this, but it did strike me the other day that in so many ways, believers are like a bunch of golfers. In golf, as far as I know, and I asked the elders and deacons before the service, there is no perfect game. In baseball, you can pitch a perfect game. If you strike out all 27 batters or make sure that none of them gets a hit or on base, you have a perfect game. In golf, there is no perfect game. Par is good, but it's not perfect. Below par is better, but it's not perfect. Someone might want to argue that perfect in golf is 18 holes in one in a row. But who's ever achieved that? So perfection isn't possible, sorry, in golf. Does that make people give up? Not if I see all those people on golf courses chasing this little white ball around. They're all striving for perfection, knowing that not one of them is ever going to achieve it. Well, that's us as believers. We strive and we strive and we strive. We strive because we want to please God. It's not about the score. It's about honoring, esteeming, loving, serving God. No matter how often we fail and fall, no matter how badly we play the game of life, 
filled with realism and purpose, we play. Oh, and it's not just with a little bit of purpose either that we play or live the Christian life. You'll notice the Catechism in Lord's Day 44 mentions a third benefit, and that has to do not with hard inspection or sober reflection. It has to do with future direction. Look at question and answer 115. You'll notice, and perhaps you know already, it's all about preaching the commandments. It's even about preaching the commandments strictly. Sounds depressing. Here's this law that that no one can keep perfectly, and preachers are supposed to. That's part of my job description. As a preacher, I'm supposed to be rubbing your nose in it. What a morbid thing to do. Well, not really. But look at the answer. I think the answer of the catechism is a consoling answer, an answer with perspective and with hope. Yes, and and hope comes in four directions given in this biblically-based answer. It's saying that as you strive to live the Christian life, the preaching of the Ten Commandments should continue. And why? Because first, it will make you Look inward. It'll make you more and more aware of your sinful nature. Not nice. Who wants to dwell on sin and misery? Who wants to play in the mud? But hold on. For while the first direction of the preaching of the law is inward, notice there is a second direction, and that direction is outward. We're not being told to get all preoccupied and wrapped up with our sinful nature. No, realizing that we have such a nature should cause us to look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ. As it says, we are to seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Christ, in other words, is the antidote for our sinful natures. His forgiveness wipes them clean. His his righteousness, His perfect righteousness and holiness fills them up. And notice that's not all. For a while we're to look inward and outward. We're also to look upward. And that's the third direction of the preaching of the law. We're to pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, means we're not to rely upon our own ability and strength The preaching of the law should constantly remind us of the need to pray, to call on God, to ask Him for help, support, and strength. And above all, as we pray to God, we need to pray for grace and then for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Our first counselor came and saved us. Our second counselor needs to come 
and fill us. And when he does, and as he does, the law and its proper preaching will also teach us not only to look inward and outward and upward, but notice also onward. As I said earlier, you may never be able to play a perfect game of golf. But one day, you'll be able to live the Christian life perfectly. And maybe then, you'll finally be able to play the perfect game of golf as well. After this life, it says, we shall reach the goal of perfection. One day, in other words, we're going to get it right. One day, we're going to live as we're meant to live. One day, we shall reflect God's image completely and utterly and splendidly and perfectly. One day, all of our striving will be losing. So don't despair. Don't give up when you fall on your face. Don't throw in the towel when doing the will of God and obeying the commandments of God appears to be such an elusive thing. Now listen to the preaching. Keep on looking inward, outward, upward, and onward. Thanks to the promise of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, the grace of the Holy Spirit, we will achieve our goal. And one day, we shall revel and rejoice in perfection. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.